Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, the, the first order business that we have is it has nothing to do with what we're doing or where we are. But a, a dude, we were talking about whether people actually spray themselves with pepper spray one day, and because uh, there's this there's this rumor you always hear about a Japanese woman who went to Yellowstone National Park and doused her kids down with bear spray as like a repellent, like you would with insect repellent. And I was saying, I didn't know if that's true. And this dude wrote in, and he used to, this guy writes in, and he used to fly 207s in, uh, you know, Cessna 207s in Southeast Alaska. Oh, as we talk about this, we got to talk about RUARC. RUARC. A correction. Another correction. Okay. Um, so this guy used to fly 207s in Southeast Alaska. This didn't happen to him, but it happened at the place he worked, where a guy, a, a tourist, wanted to get dropped off at a place near Haines, Alaska. And he wanted to bring along his bear spray with him and they had it in a and he put they they, they would fly with bear spray so long as they could uh put it inside a PVC tube and then lock it in a fifty cal ammo can and then stash it in the nose compartment of the plane. The pilot brings this guy into an airstrip for a little hike about, drops the dude off, gives him his bear spray, and the pilot lifts off and as he's circling on, he looks and the, the, the hiker is laid out on the ground. Circles again, the, the hiker doesn't get up. And lands the plane and goes over there. And sure enough, the hiker had 
put his bear spray on himself as a repellent and was diagnosed with chemical pneumonia and spent his vacation in the hospital. When you get that. Wow. The other thing is, is another dude wrote in to say, I, I had credited Robert Ruark with writing Death in the Tall Grass. If we had an internet connection, I'd tell you who did write it. But he told me that that's not who wrote Death in the Tall Grass. No, it's uh, Peter Capstick. There you go. Why didn't you bring that up when we were talking about it? He was just zoning out. I was in the zone, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I do remember talking about Ruark. I remember thinking, oh, So, so you'd let me say like a bald that's, face, that's, like a that's correct. That's not his best book. His best book is uh, The Old Man and the Boy is Ruark. Well, and Ruark is using enough gun. I'm sorry. You, I just missed it in passing. No. Oh, all right. It's because we tune you out, Steve. Yeah. Speaking of literature, um, I got a book idea for any aspiring writers out there. It's called This Hole Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us. And what it is is a fishing book. And, and like with fishing books, like you look at Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea, right? It's about fishing, but it's not. It's about growing old and tenacity and perseverance and how and the futility of it all. Right, and then river runs through it. It's like supposed to be about fishing, but it's about fatherhood, brotherhood. What are your obligations to the people that love you? And um, this hole ain't big enough for both of us. Will be a fishing book that's about a love triangle. Oh, the title, like, right, speaks volumes. Um, so there, I'm throwing a bone to any aspiring writers. Now we are in Guyana, and Guyana is in. Northeast South America. So if you imagine like the the, the Caribbean or the Caribbean, um, Guyana, it's north. It, its coast is on its, on the north and faces up into the Caribbean, and some of its biggest rivers flow out into the Caribbean. If you go to the the, the headwaters of certain rivers, you'd kind of like drop down into the Amazon basin. It's ninety percent rainforest. 90% of the population lives on 10% of the land. Um, in the land, how, how do you, uh, Rovin, Alvin's here with this, and Rovin is Makushi, Amerindian, born in Rewa Village. That's all true and correct, right? Yeah, correct. Um, the coastal peoples are largely like descendants of slaves and other laborers that were brought in to work plantations on the coast. Guyana is now an independent nation. It's bordered by Suriname, Brazil, Venezuela. But in the interior jungles where we are, it's primarily Amerindians. And, and Rova, can you name some of the different tribes of Amerindians that live in this area? I know you have the Makushi. Then we have the Wapishana. The, those are the guys that come down that, that river upstream from right, here. Right, right. Patamona. And then YY. YY? Arawak. And, um, and Carib, right? But they were on the yeah, coast. Carib, yeah, yeah. They, they were, were the coastal. The, right, they were in the coast. Yeah. Um, if you, the, the biggest, so the biggest river that drains Guyana is the Essequibo. And when the Essequibo flows out into, into the, like the southern Caribbean, it's, you know, it's a giant river. So I think it's the third largest river in South America. And it's got a delta that's 20 miles wide. Um, if you go way the hell up the uh, the Essequibo, you come to the confluence of the Rewa River and the Rupununi. Am I saying that right? 
River. Like they flow together right here where we're sitting right now. Yeah. Come straight to the Rupununi, then Riva River. Oh, so you go, you enter the Rupununi, then Riva River. Riva River. Yeah. And that's where we're sitting right now. Right. Correct. How many people live in your village? 309. Last time I was here, it was 200 and some. Why the mass population growth in your village? I don't know. A good place to live? Good place to live. People migrate, come here. And um, we have like more babies coming up. Yeah. So we have like more population. And what, like in this village, what percent is Makushi? About uh, 70%. About 70% Makushi. Yeah. And what, what other groups live here? So we have Makushi, which is 70%. Then we have the YY. Then we have the Wapashanas and um, Carib. Okay. Yeah. So Wapashanas live here? Yeah, they're here. We all live together. And you can mar- intermarry? Yeah. No problem. No problem. Is it very uncommon for people to leave, you know, younger generations to move to another tribe? Or Yeah, that's how it is here. You know. If I want to marry a girl from other villages, I can go and do that because I'm not foreigner. I'm a Indian. And you married a woman from another village? Yeah. Is she Makushi? No, she's a Wapishana. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, she- so she's a Wapshana, I'm Makoshi. But like I said, we are Amoranians and we all live together. Yeah. Now, when Rovan met his wife, they the primary crop, Rovan is a guide, a fisherman, and a farmer. Is that fair? Correct. The main crop that they grow in Rewa Village is cassava, which in some places is known as manioc, and it's a root. And name the things you guys make from cassava. So out of cassava, we can make our farin, we can make our tapioca, our local drinks, which is kasiri. Or purple drink. Yeah, whatever you could call it. Yeah. And parakari, and um, black karzip, which comes from cassava. And um, I think that's it. More, 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 uh, more of it that comes from the cassava that we make. Yeah, and you eat cassava several times a day, every day, every single day. We just did a long river trip. I shouldn't say long. How many days did we spent on the river? Seven, right? Yeah, yeah seven a, days. Spent a week on the river, camped in three different places on the river. Um. And fished many, many kinds of things, and uh, and watched Rovin and his his wife and his, some of the guys that Rovin works with, in camps with, and travels with, cook all manner of fishes. But the first thing we did when we got here is went out and and, and saw how they do cassava. So we watched Rovin's mother. Take some cassava root, which comes out of the ground looking like a big ass yam. Does that everyone agree? Looks like a big ass yam hooked to a tree. You pull the tree out of the ground and the tree comes out. The tree's like not even as big as your wrist. It comes out with three big ass yams hooked to it. You grate it and squeeze 
the liquid out. And in its raw form, the liquid will kill you, your dog, anything that drinks it. Is that right? Correct. Yes. It has cyanide. Cyanide. Which made me wonder, maybe Rovin knows the answer to this. Rovin, are you familiar with the Jonestown massacre? The Jonestown massacre? No. Okay. In the 70s, a Christian sect from the Bay Area in the U.S., led by a minister named Jim Jones, came to Guyana, and they set up a large commune, and it had commune slash cult, Jim Jones being the, the cult of personality. And they set up a large commune that had 800-some people in it. And they became like sort of, the, as many groups do, they, they formed a sort of like a post-apocalyptic vision. And some things happened. There was like an investigation. Some congressmen were coming down because a lot of relatives in the Bay Area of the U.S. were like wanting to know what happened to their kinfolk. And there was a lot of talk about they were going to get disturbed and there was going to be arrests and there was a lot of bad things going on. And they fixed up a big batch of Kool-Aid that was poisoned with cyanide. I now wonder if it was poisoned with cassava water. I would think. Easy to find out. But I just don't we don't yeah. have re, we don't have a way to log no, no. on and Let's find say out. Had some bottles of cyanide shipped in. So which is be like a weird thing to ship in. So with the suicides, firearms, and cyanide Kool-Aid. So when you hear someone say don't drink the Kool-Aid, that's what they're talking about. And eight hundred and some people all died in Guyana. Americans. Americans. Wow. It gave name to what I consider one of the greatest rock bands of all time, which is the Brian Jonestown Massacre. So Brian Jones was the you know member of the Rolling Stones, and he drowned. The Jonestown Massacre was what we're talking about now, and the Brian Jonestown Massacre is a great band. Um, you hadn't heard of that? No, I never heard, heard about that. Yeah, it was before you were born, and it was all it wasn't Guyanese; it was all Americans. Okay. Yeah, weird deal. However. Have you seen? Have you ever seen anything drink cassava water and die? I just saw the chicken, the the yard chicken, drink a little and then run and dead. Why don't you guys guard that water more? <laughs> Do you know? What I mean? Is there like a protocol in place for when you squeeze the water out of grated cassava? Is there like a way that you guard it so that no children will drink it? Is it ever left out? The we 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 got used for it. So what uh, what we do is that after squeezing out, that's the one goes in the pot to be boiled over. So and you over. never leave it laying around. You no, immediately no, no. boil it. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay, what he's getting at is when you squeeze the water out of this thing, um, and it looks like they they make they weave uh they weave a. Thing that looks like a Chinese finger trap, but it's five feet long. Yeah. Big around as your leg. And they put all that grated cassava in there, and there's a pole in it, and you sit on it. So you're sort of like, as you sit on the pole, which is through a handle in the Chinese finger trap, it tightens the Chinese finger trap and squeezes out the liquid. That liquid is boiled. Once it comes to a boil, it's not poisonous anymore. Is that right? Yeah. 
and that is called that drink is called what? Local drink. No, the this the water after it's, it's boiled. After it's boiled, it's called the black black carzip. Yeah, it's reduced. It's no, like no, no, a, no, not reduced. Just when it when your mom first boiled it and we drank it. Oh, that is called um, kasiri. Kasiri, yeah, and that's not alcoholic. It gets alcohol after three, four days. But that includes the actual gratings, not just the liquid. The gratings are in there. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, just the grating and then the the color, the black pot, it to come in together, and then that's the one goes in the pot and boiled. And that's a good drink. That's a good drink. No alcohol. Alcohol would be next two, three days. It uh, ferments, yeah. So, no, let me back up for a minute because you're hearing... Eddie, tell you already heard Dirt Myth talking. Eddie, um, Dirt's uh, he started chewing these little what are they called? Snoofs. Yeah, and his and his in his ongoing efforts to kick his tobacco habit, he's chewing little mini chewers, little mini like they're like skull bandits, but not not yeah they're 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 healthier for you. They actually are <laughs> healthy for you. They're organic. You organic can't afford the grizzly. Bandits. Yeah. Yeah. They do have. They come in a package that is useful once the pouches are are used up, though, which is kind of nice. So he knew that since he cannot buy dip here, if he chewed these weakened dips pouches, yeah, that it would start to wean him off. And thinking that when he goes home, he'll continue on his path to quitting. But he also knows that when he's going to go home, he's going to take his eighty-year-old pickup truck <laughs> and buy gas and walk in to pay for the gas. And be tempted. And there will be an entire wall <laughs> of dip saying, Dear myth, welcome home. Myth, welcome to the United States. I'll be like, hey, boys. And he'll buy a big thing of Coke. <laughs> and a, a thing that Dirt Myth is talking about tobacco, too, real quick, is that when you see a dude buying Grizzly, it's not because he likes it. It's because it's cheap. Example, my dad. He's, he's very frugal. Quality dip is Coke. Yeah. And you chew what? I chew Coke, man. I got a good job. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh rick smith who um uh, just baffles me that this man's single it always has baffled me that he's single i thought i thought we made a deal not to talk about this on the podcast anymore we did oh sorry he's, he's got a girlfriend um which doesn't surprise me that he has a girlfriend because this man knows how to juggle machetes and not only that juggles machetes where there is not even a prayer of medical help no one's coming for you when yeah. you injure yourself juggling machetes where you chose to juggle machetes this week. That was my main concern looking through the first aid kit. And then he later <laughs> later took a look through the first aid kit and was disappointed to find that there were no sutures in case, for instance, someone got cut by a machete. <laughs> While juggling. <laughs> we do have that on video. <laughs> so, yeah, Rick Rick knows how to juggle machetes, which in which here they call a cutlass, which I like, is, is a nice touch. And then uh, Corey, who pronounces his name two different ways, Catchmatic is the right way. Uh, well, there's Kazmarik. Which is what everyone says. And then there's Kutchmark, and then there's Kutchmarik, so it's three. Kutchmark is the Polish way. And then there's Janita Brutality, <laughs> <laughs> which is a term of endearment. Um, yeah, you know, you'd, have, oh, yeah. you'd have to say Janitis. 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 So, you good? Yeah. Um, 
He, he's the guy that failed to correct me when I had the book wrong. Now, uh, Rovin, so we made the drink, and we, we drank the drink. But when we left for our river trip, you had between your legs in the boat a five-gallon bucket, which had originally contained uh, motor oil, mm-hmm. filled with what? That was Kasiri. That was Kasiri. Yeah. But you were you were waiting for it to ferment a little, ferment and get a little bit alcoholic. Yeah. Like beer. Right. Now, they, Roven likes it. Uh, from a bowl. So as you're motoring up the river, you just open the lid on the five-gallon bucket and have a bowl, and that's sort of like the main hydration. So that's one form of Kasiri. But when Kasiri gets like toward the end we were drinking it and it was stronger, does it have a different name then? No. 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 Stays Kasiri. Stays Kasiri. That's the different stuff. The other one that you had that... The, yeah, the, the other one is the uh, parakari. What is that made out of? Same cassava. Same but, root. Yeah, the same root, but uh, different steps of. So that has been baked on a huge pan. So it's like a roti pan, but bigger. Oh, I, that's where you bake it. It looks almost like a big, what we would call a pizza crust, which I know probably doesn't give an image to you, but like like a big round bread. Right, right, right. But what part of it? The the gratings? Yeah, the same. Uh, well, that goes. So the grating started peeling, of course, peeling, grating. And then after grating goes into this matapi, squeezes out all the stuff that left in the matapi. And the finger trap deal. Right. Oh, the finger, the, the matapi is the thing that squeezes right, out. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, it goes to the sifter, which we made here. Yep. And sieve it, and then we have this huge um, pan which is ready, and then we bake that. Um, the mi- the mill which is there comes out from the matapi. Mm-hmm. So we bake it there. No liquid. No liquid. Remember, it's squeezed out from the matapi. Yeah. The liquid is here. One that what is that is in the matapi. That's the one we sieve out and bake it, and goes on the floor. Cover it for two nights, and then open it. When it's open, it's sweet first day, mm-hmm. and then I don't know four or five days gets real alcohol. It'll get as strong as rum. Get stronger, yeah, like rum. Yeah. We didn't have. We brought some of that with us too. Yeah, I took half bucket. Half bucket. <laughs> so five gallons of Kasiri and two and a half gallons or so of Parakari. Parakari. Rah. So that's the beverages that you derive from the root. Now the meal the the variations on the meal that Rovin and and his and his fellow travelers eat every day would be that that you well let me let me back up now because it gets more complicated than this. Just so people just so listeners can catch up. Imagine that instead of saying cassava, which you can't picture, let's imagine that you had some apples, okay? And you grated the apples, and then you squeezed all. You took all that grated apple and squeezed out the liquid and boiled it. That would be like what we're talking about when we're saying kasiri. Then you take the actual pulp of the apple and make a pancake out of it and cook it 
and ferment that lick with liquid, and that makes the the strong alcohol one. What is the farine? Which is a three time which you guys eat when you're traveling, you eat three times a day. Well, how do you make farine? Farine is prepared differently. First, we go to the farm. Okay. Get uh, a root of cassava, which would be one warshi. Uh, that would be roughly 50 pounds. Okay. So what we do... What is the unit of measurement? A warshi? Yeah, warshi is backpack. Oh, one of those backpacks you guys make right. out of the right. woven... Yeah. Right. So what we do is that we put the cassava in the any flour or sugar bag, put it in the river so that the cassava can rotten soft. Oh. So when it's like three days in the river, so when we go check the skin gets soft, so what remains inside, which we call cassava yeast, now we take that in and put it in a oil bucket, and then we go and look for... You mean like a, the five-gallon right, motor oil bucket? Right, right. Yeah. And then we go get some... Uh, fresh cassava roots. Okay. So, to our ratio, one five-gallon would be uh, equivalent to like two washi. That would be like a hundred pound. Okay. To mix the one that is already rotten. Fresh roots and then roots you soaked in the Right, 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 right. Yeah. Then the grating start, of course, the grating, and then what we do after grating, we grate the one that's been rotten Combine it together and mix all both. Okay. You have to mix it very um, good. And then leave it for a night. The next following day, start the matapin. Once you start the matapin, you're getting rid of the the juice. Okay. So you put it in the, the what we the, the squeezer. Right. What we've been calling a, a Chinese finger trap device, right. which I don't, you're probably not familiar with, but like a, 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 a something that pressurizes it to get the liquid out. Right. Here we call it matapi. Yep. So the ladies like do matapi. Can I interrupt? How long does it take to make a matapi? About three days. Three days of weaving. Yeah. And a man would make it or a woman would make it? Man, a man would make a it. A man would make yeah. it. Yeah. So now the ladies will do the matapi. And then after matapeing, we have a special um, sifter to for that, special farine sifter. So we sieve it. Now after sieving, there is a pan that is set up, made from a gasoline barrel. Okay. Which which we bust in half and make a pan. Yeah. Which is like maybe a six six feet and um so we got this pan ready but heated with fire we have like fire ready of course yeah. the men so you bring split fire. open a fire you split open a a, a barrel a steel barrel yeah, steel barrel and set it over a fire right yeah so we have the like firewood ready now the fire started to light up now we gotta heat the pan now it's like when you're making a pancake you have to use uh Fry oil. Yep. But for farine, we use um, cow fat. It's perfect. Cow fat. Cow fat. Yeah. So we, we use the cow fat. Where do you find cow? Where do you get cow fat? It's on sale in an area. 
Water oh, villages. So you just buy it. Because you guys don't it. raise any cows. No. Yeah. So so what we do, we, we put the calf at on the pan. Because if you put the fresh sieved cassava meal there, it gets sticky and burn. Mm-hmm. To, to avoid that, we use kalfat to oil up the pan. Then the, the stuff came in, and then we started like storing the whole meal that goes in there. Yep. Roughly, roughly, it's like two and a half hours to complete the whole from from putting in the pan until the finishing part. That's when it starts to get hard. Yep. And you want you gotta be very careful when you're storing the pan because you gotta look out for fine ones burning out. When that happens, the whole of your fine will get burned up. So to avoid that, you gotta store it. Yeah, is that something you and your wife do together? Yeah. When you make it. Yeah. And then you do it all the way till it's dry. Yeah, all the way till it's dry, and then when you gotta feel it, put it in your hand and. Start putting him out. Start chewing. Yep. Once you can bite it, well, that's good. Now, what? Who came up with the? Who who equated it to grape nuts? Right? I said that. Corey, I claim that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I repeated it. I concurred. It's a, like if you it, imagine uh, the, the the end product would be like if you had it's the color the product is the color of cornmeal, and the size there's a there, it's it's not it's not homogeneous in size the size of the the meal. Ranges from a, a uncooked grit, let's say, and there's some that are like a, cuckoo, a couscous piece, on up to like a grape nut piece. Maybe even a pea. Every yeah, now, every now and then. I call those parts gravel because they are very difficult to chew. But Robin says that children like, especially like to chew them. So when these guys travel, they carry a. Tell me, I, I, I already forgot the name of the stuff. Farine. When they travel, the main thing you need when you travel is a big thing of farine. Yeah. And they grow hot peppers, which just regular look like American small peppers. And they dry them and pulverize them. And you put those in a pot bottle. Right. So you got a pot bottle full of dried peppers. And you have farine. And when it's lunchtime, you catch fish. And either chop the fish up, bones and all, gut them, and then part them out. And when I say chop them up with a machete, it's going to, like, I think that people envision, like, someone just randomly hacking up a fish with a machete. But it certainly is not that. It's like a surgical, it's a, it's a surgical chopping up of a fish. Very precise. Yeah, it's, they're like, they're portions. Yeah, it's like splitting certain, splitting the spine, splitting the head. Oftentimes, pull out the or, or pull out the spine, leave the rib slabs on, head open, uniform pieces, done where it's like it's beautiful to see the fish get chopped up. That fish can be roasted on a what they call a barbecue which is a grill you set up with like all out of green wood set what, 24 inches off the fire probably. That might be a little generous. No. Yeah, I'd say it's more like 18, right? Foot and a half. 
Yeah, I think it's two feet. That. Yeah, about two feet. Get a big fire, and then you build a grate over it with green wood and roast the fish on there, or just take raw fish and boil it. Then, when that fish is cooked, for lunch, you take a bowl and put the the kasiri. No, I'm messing it up. Farine. The farine. Farine. Put the farine in the bowl. Dip up some river water. Pour it in there. Put on some cold boiled fish. And then put on some of your pot bottle full of ground peppers. And that's lunch. And when you add liquid... It's like adding milk to the grape nuts. Yeah. They get a little softer. Softens it up. Yep. For dinner, it's basically the same except the they make a broth with river water and the addition of a syrup produced by making a kasiri reduction until it turns into a black syrup. You flavor it and color the broth with that, put the peppers in there, and then put whatever fish you caught or whatever animals you hunted in there, and that's dinner. Breakfast is that. Yeah, correct. And you guys can go hard day after day after day after day with great enthusiasm and being spatially aware to a degree that I've never seen of aware of your surroundings, what birds you hear, what fish you see, you find, you spot all game, you drag boats, row boats, right, haul things, portage stuff, work your asses off eating that thing. Yeah. I asked Rowan if they like green vegetables. He said no. Now you get hungry fast. Yeah. So the good thing with the furry is like when we have our pepper pot or the bar- barbecue set up, when we're eating the farin, like once you soak the farin, it swells, and after eating, it swells more in your stomach. Yep, it can keep you up. And then, if you have your local drink, the parakari or the kasiri, like it's st- you can be stuff up pretty good, and then you can do a hard work throughout the whole day. Yeah, it, it's it's like drinking a juice or lime juice, yep. whatever juice you have after the meal. No snacks. No, no dessert. No dessert. Fish. Just, just fish. Three times a day times with a day. with the meal made from the root. Yeah. I you don't you don't appreciate how like from an American ear, from from our the way we live, how like unusual that is. We eat so I mean we how many different things are you eating today? It just is really impressive to me. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, We got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection 
for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash eater. Make sure you use code MEATEATER to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. I like it. Is there an ancestral like legend of the cassava plant? Like, it's amazing how some a poison can be turned into something so like a powerful food. Yeah, a lot of people ask that question, but it's tr- trying to get the background of cassava and where it came from, all of that. You know, it's it's hard to say, hard to explain. But um, since I get to know myself, I know my parents were doing the same. They were doing fishing farming, hunting. So I grew up the same way. When when Rovin was young, um, the, like the, the the river we're on now, we went up the river. How, how many, you guys figured out like river miles, 65? No, 45 miles, or 35 miles. Yeah, that's Six, air miles. No, 60, it was 65 kilometers. So we're thinking, oh, okay. Yeah. So we went up the river a, a good bit. Uh, basically, like three days of of motoring with fifteen horse, like uh, 
what are they like 20 18 18 20 foot boats being pushed by 15 horse yamaha outboards yeah three days of motoring up a river um big sandbars virgin jungle um, a lot of rock outcrops holes rapids that kind of river uh tell was i getting at back in the day oh oh yeah we but yeah so when Roven was a boy now to give a sense of how much like sort of the the way times have changed when Roven was a boy you you never made it you you guys never went as far as we went up the river because you were traveling in handmade dugout canoes correct and when Roven's father needed to get money when he needed currency the way to get currency was that he would take your whole family? No, just his his big son, which would be like I Cliff and the other uh, older sons, mm-hmm. to help him like paddle and to get more fish. But your mother would not go on those trips. She would. She would stay because the other small kids. The small to take care of the small yeah. kids. And you guys would paddle a dugout canoe with the heaviest paddles I've ever lifted up in my entire life. Purple Heart Man. Yeah, they make a paddle out of a very durable wood called Purple Heart, and these paddles are probably 12-pound paddles. You would paddle upriver for one week. Yeah. Camping along the way. Camping along the way. Then you'd get to a fishing spot. Right. Spend another week there. Just fishing and hunting. Fishing and hunting. Fishing and hunting one spot. And salt all of the catch. Yeah, correct. Paddle back down, and your father would sell those salted fish. Yeah. To who? So in the Ana area, they have store owners that buy fishes. So who would buy? Like, who would you sell the salted fish to? So we have store owners. Um, they have markets. So what they do, like they request for salt fish and my dad will go up get 100 pound plus fish take him up the river from here to Anna it's like two days paddling and then so he'd paddle back down to your village and then back up another back up, river right 50 miles up the river and then use a bullet cart to take the fish because back then there were no tractor no car no truck so from the river to the village, it's a one-hour walk. So my dad would not walk with that load. So instead, he had like a bullet cart hired, you know, and then put the stuff inside and take him straight up to the... Oh, oh, what, uh, I'm sorry, what kind of cart? The bullock cart. Like oxen or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oxen. Are yeah. you saying bull and cart? Yeah, you know, there's two oh. cows with a trailer behind. I understand. Bullock cart. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. So they would haul the, the load of salted fish into the place to sell. Yeah. And if you did a trip like that, do you have any do you have any recollection like how much money would that be? How much money would you make in those days? Those times were cheap, really cheap. I think it's like eighty eighty dollars a pound then when I get to know myself. Eighty Guyanese dollars yeah. per pound. Yeah, yeah. That was like many years ago. Now it's the price gone up. Uh, maybe like fifteen, sixteen thousand 
in after you sell out. And what would that be in today's U.S. dollars? Fifteen thousand. It's a uh, seventy-five U.S. dollars. Yeah. yeah. Many days of work. Many days of work. But now it's far different. The price gone up. But uh, well, then there were no like jobs here in the village. You that's, just hunted. You had to hunt and fish, and that was it. Yeah, hunt fish, go fish, catch more fish. Hundred pound fish, two hundred pound fish. Then go sell. We had no job employment here, so that's what my dad had been doing. Yeah, just to support me going to the school. That was what the money was for. Yeah, and to buy the basic like salt, sugar, yeah, and stuff like that. In in those days, when you were little, before you found out, before you started to be a river guide. And to take people up the river to, to fish and, and to experience like a way of life or to, to view wildlife and all these other things that you guide for. How many days? And I've asked you a lot of questions, like, or I say, like, how many days a year? And I gather you don't really think in that way. Like, that's not a way you count time. But, like, how often would you hunt and fish when you were 20 years old? Maybe like twice a week. Twice a week? Yeah, twice a week. And that would get you enough? Yeah, I, I got I got a wife and I have my household and that's just for me and my family. Mm-hmm. Well, my parents are close by whenever I have more than I share. So if you, to get just to get a better sense, if you kill a, if you were to kill a peccary, how many days would that peccary last? That would last a week. Okay. That, that, it's one of our favorite too, so you know. It was faster. A favorite is peccary. Yeah. Yeah. You were saying that that uh, catfish was two days, right? The one you salted on the strip. Yeah. For your family. For the family. The leopard catfish. When we left here, okay. Try to think as we traveled up the river. Try to think of the uh, notable bits of wildlife we saw traveling up the river. Scarlet macaw. Lots lots of macaws. Powerful. And a different kind of macaw that's a different color. Green. Red and green, scarlet, blue and yellow macaws. Yeah, Rovin knows every bird and every bird call. And this is a place that has how many hundreds of species of birds? Yeah, it's like 1,500. So... It's like one thing if you think you're cool because you know the seven birds that come to your bird feeder. We're talking like a encyclopedic amount of, uh, you know. So we saw macaws. We saw a capybara, which is the world's largest rodent. That's the interesting point to bring up about this river. This river has the world's largest alligator, black caiman, the world's largest rodent, the capybara, the world's largest snake, anaconda and the new world's largest eagle which i saw today which is a harpy eagle who preys on monkeys i did not see it i'm jealous yeah rick cares more than i do and, and he didn't he didn't see it so we saw capybaras on the way up macaws toucans like toucan sam the breakfast cereal bird i think we saw a different one which one did we s- i saw one with uh rudy we have two types. They look similar, but uh, you got to be careful which which one you're looking at. So one is called the channel built token, and then the other one is um, 
white throat token. White throat token. We saw the channel channel build. Yeah. What were the white cranes that you see a lot of? Those are cocoi herons. A lot of herons. Yeah, lots of herons. I forgot to mention an important part. Another thing before we left, besides uh, messing with the cassava, is Roven made some arrows. Now, Roven's fishes and hunts with a bow, which they call a Makushi bow, and he makes his own bow, and the bow is made from what tree? Wamara tree. Wamara tree. The bow string is made from... Krawa. Krawa plant. Yeah, imagine if you took like a... um, Imagine if you took a aloe, like picture a giant aloe plant, and there's like a fibrous part of the plant, and you stripped away all the pulp, and then took just the string, the fiber string, and twisted it into a string. That is Roven's bow string. Roven makes his arrows from a plant called arrow plant. Yeah. Which is my favorite name for a plant in the world. Arrow plant. He fletches his arrows with um, a black or crestless curacao feather. Ties the fletching on with the same fibrous plant rope that he makes the bowstring out of. The knock is made from purple heartwood? Bulletwood. Bulletwood. And then on the other end of the arrow plant, there's a shaft made from the same wood, bulletwood. And then they take a chunk of, depending on what kind of point you're making, you either, if you're making a blade for hunting peccary, or deer, you cut out a piece of a machete, what they call a cutlass, and make a blade, and that gets affixed. Other fish points are made from a piece of hog wire fencing that they pound and pound and flatten it and then cut barbs into it to make drop points and wire points. And that is Rovin's tool. And we made an arrow. And then we went to a plant. What was the plant where we got the maggot bait? Oh, the cockroach. A palm. Yeah, the, it's it's called a cochrit palm. So we went to a cochrit cochrit. Yeah, cochrit. Went to a cochrit palm, and it had dropped all of its fruit. And we cut a couple of the fruits open. And the and the grubs. There's a grub in each one, and a lot of the grubs had already turned to moths and flown away because you'd find a little hole bored in them. Then we went to another tree, and it was the right ripeness where every time you found one that didn't have a hole in it from the moth escaping, the beetle escaping would have a big maggot a big larva once you've identified it as being the right fruit then you just fill up your pockets or a bag with the fruit and bring those along as a fishing bait yeah our first night up the river we caught for dinner black piranha tell me about that fish in this um, river here there are a lot of black piranhas, uh, different species of um, piranhas. Yeah, so, can you name off the different species of piranhas? So we got the the black one are the biggest we have here, the black piranhas. Then we got the red-bellied piranhas. Then the orange chick piranhas. And um, what next? Well, cat to back and pacu right, are we both have the, we have herbivorous the, piranhas. Right? Yeah, 
those are families of piranhas, the vegetarian piranhas, the paku, and the katabak, which we call. Yeah. Now, you guys were kind of humoring me when we went out to fish black piranhas because I was throwing a crankbait. And not successfully at all. And eventually, I can't remember if I caught one. Maybe I caught one. And all of a sudden, your brother Dennis made some cut bait and had about a hand line with 10 feet of line on it and took a hunk of piranha meat on a hook and hung it over the side of the boat and started slapping the surface of the water with a stick to make like a frantic water slashing noise. And then started knocking the shit out of huge piranhas. Big piranha. How big are the piranhas? Three pounds? Oh, more than that. Then it's four or five pounds. And we caught a pile of them. Yeah. Where, is that like, is that a favorite fish? Yeah, they're favorite and easy to catch. Yeah. Why do you guys not eat, uh, why do you not eat caimans? Because you have a lot of fish in the river. But you like to hunt for certain birds and peccaries and then also a large rodent called a goody and a large rodent called paca. Yeah. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, if you asked me, if you if we were in my if we were in my country hunting and we saw a possum, okay, and you said to me, Why don't you are you gonna get the possum? I would say I would have a difficult time explaining why we were not gonna eat the possum, but it would kind of come down to um, people don't really like the meat. They're difficult to deal with. And it's just not a thing that we traditionally hunt for and eat, though in some parts of the country, some people do eat them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I was in Bolivia, and they ate... The Amerindians in Bolivia like to hunt for red howler monkeys. When I told you that, you laughed. Why like why is that why is that not a thing that the Makushi hunt and eat? Well I guess we uh, like I said we have fish and uh, we are not so much behind monkeys and then we have the animals like the agoti, lava, pickeries, deer. We have them here. They are more tastier, I would say that way. So you think it really comes down to you have like a big abundance of food? Yeah, we have a lot of food. A big abundance of fish. So if, yeah, so if, I think if we don't have fish or any animal, then we could perhaps start eating monkeys. If you were desperate. Yeah. But it's really just a matter of, it's like the fish are better, they're easy to catch, they're very abundant. Right. Because you guys really like, I noticed that, um, as much as you've had long exposure to them, you really like to stop and watch the monkeys mm-hmm. and observe all the different animals, even though you don't have any thinking about them as like a food item. No. Did you like to watch them when you were a kid, or did you learn to like watching them because Americans and other and Europeans and things want to come and see these things? Uh, I, I started like doing that when I started off board guiding and taking tourists 
nature hikes. Yeah. You learn that people like to see these yeah. things, and then you start observing right. them more instead of just focusing on the food yeah. items. Yeah. So that's why, like, you look at the monkeys and the behavior. And, yeah. And then there are some animals that that used to be hunted here but became very rare. Yeah, we have. Like the arapaima. Yeah. The world's largest freshwater fish. Right. That used to be a thing that people here hunted and sold for sold to Brazil, right? Yeah. And now you in this area generally people don't kill them anymore. Yeah. They're worth more alive than they are dead. Yeah, that's correct. They're worth more alive than dead. Because why? We sport fish for them. People want to come and People catch. People want to come, pay a lot of money. Not many of fishermen come, but pay lots of money to catch an arapaima for a week. An absurd amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> like like a the amount of money that it costs to come and catch an arapaima would be equivalent to an elk hunt. Oh, twice as much. Twice as much as an elk. Well, hunt. depending on the elk hunt. I mean, elk hunts vary, but. That's what strikes me as like a, such a huge change that occurred in your lifetime. And you're not that old. You're in your thirties. Thirty two. To be that to be that you used to go on trips with your father to spend two weeks of labor to make seventy five dollars in salted fish. And now people will come and give a hundred times that to catch and look at and let go the same fish that you used to catch and sell. Yeah. It's it's a big difference. <laughs> it's a big difference. What do you think about that difference? Is there are there I can see all the positives, right? Yeah. When I walk around your village and I've traveled a fair bit, right? When I walk around your village, I see like very happy, prosperous people. Mm-hmm. How, like for how far out you live, like for how far you live away from a city, I see people like healthy, happy, prosperous, like a, a place that anyone would be pleased to walk around, like good friendly people, right? I see all the, po- and I'm not saying that all that came from your lot, having a lodge and having an airstrip where people can come in and experience it. I, I know that it didn't all come from that, but that helps, right? Yeah. But are, do you recognize, are there negatives? Like, are there things you miss about the old way? Well, the negative, the it's 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 hard it's hard to say. But um, if there's not a re- don't make one up. I mean, if if you really don't, if you know, I mean, I'm not like pressing you to think of one. If there's one that is always on your mind, that's fair to say. But you don't need to like try hard to think of a negative. Yeah, it's hard to say. You view it as very like a a positive thing. Yeah, because what? Why is it? It's it's a big difference. It's like my father and I would go 
just to get a little bit of money then. To support me going to the school, there were no jobs, there were no ecologists here. But then when we built up this ecology, you have like borders coming in, different type of tourists coming in. Then we have, well, good thing for us, we have this Arapaima. They were close to extinct, but then we conserve them. And then the population increases a lot now. Yeah. So instead of harvesting them, we sport fish for them. That's where I said it's it's a big difference. Yeah. And then going, going with my father, you know, he showed me some ponds where we go fish. Now, at this age, I know where to take my guests. Oh, really? Because he showed me where the ponds are. Same ponds. The same ponds, the same knowledge he showed me. I, well, I'm, now I'm taking the guests to the ponds, fish for arapaimas. Yeah, let, let me explain real quick. So the arapaimas, correct me, if I say something wrong, tell me. The arapaimas are in the river, but generally live in Oxbow Lake. So if you imagine, like a, like if a listener is imagining a, a river, how it flows in like a long series of S's, now and then one of the S's will jump itself. Like the river will cut through, take a shortcut through and jump to the next S. And that leaves a big U-shaped lake where the river changes course, but the old river channel stays full of water. That be, That is what we call an oxbow lake. And river rivers change all the time. Like we're right now, I'm sitting near the river on a spot that, absolutely was at one point in time the river and then the river moved over that way and something that'll move over back this way um creating these new channels and the arapaimas live in there and they get up to hundreds of pounds over 400 pounds the lakes flood during the rainy season so the arapaimas aren't necessarily stuck there like they get there during the rainy season the water recedes they stay in these stagnant areas and feed on peacock bass and other fish and then they can move when everything floods again. Roven was telling me that last year there was a lake that was it was very dry and the lake was going to dry all the way up. And they rescued 26 arapaimas out of the lake and dragged them over to the river. Yeah. Ranging from 80 some inches long down to 50 some inches long. Yeah. Wow. An arapaima rescue operation. Yeah. How'd you move them? Put them into boats? We, that would have been a good episode of TV. We put them in the boat. No, I, well, I wouldn't have. But. We, we put in a, <laughs> Not joking. Yeah, we put them in the boat. So the pond was like maybe from here to the dining area. Shallow water, but those arapaima did dig their own hold. So it was like five feet deep. So most of our, those arapaima, the back were missing. The scale were missing. Oh, From really? the birds that, you know. From it, birds pecking on them? Yeah. Because they were that stuck in there. Yeah. So one of those, one of those guys like checking the pond, they said, hey, you know what? Our pimas are drying up. So here, because our pimas, you know, it, it means a lot to us. We make a lot of money to our pimas. So instead of allowing them to dead there, we go and rescue them. Since we were making a lot of money from the Arapaima. Yeah. Because if we lose 26 arapaimas, and then that's where we, want to, we take our clients, there'll be like no more arapaima in that pond. 
So what we do is that we rescue the arapaimas. So after the rainy season, they would able or throughout the rainy season, they would able to go back to the same spot. Yep. And then, can you explain how you rescued them? So we get a net which is like six six inch high net. We surround one, not two, one only. Because if you surround like two, one will dead. So we do like separate, one, one separate at, yeah, one, one, at, one at a time. Yeah. We grab them, put in the boat, put some water in the boat because our parents, they breed ear. So we have probably like 15 guys ready to run with the, with the arapaima. At certain point, they would lift the fish, give the fish some breath, and then continue straight to the river. Yeah. Yeah. Every 10 or 12 minutes, an arapaima will come up and gulp water. Yeah. They come up to gulp air. Or sorry, come up to gulp air. Yeah. And, so, and how many days did it take to do all 26? We took like about four days. Really hard work. Yeah. Can you explain to me how, in the old days, how you guys would hunt for arapaima? Well, uh, I, I saw my dad once. He he spot some arapaima like rolling in the pond. The, the technique that he uses is like climb up in the tree on the tree. Climb and, up, climb up in a tree. Yeah, and wait. Because arapaima was rolling, so he spot the spot, and then he find a tree and he climb up there and wait. So when the fish roll, and he's up in the tree, and he aim and shoot the fish with his bow, with his bow, and then track down the um, chest behind the arrow. Let me, let me. I'm, I'm sorry, but I need to just, just so people, because people won't be able to picture what how this works. They make a arrow. What what is the arrow called that that you use for paku? Uh, we call it drop point. Okay, so it's a it's basically an arrow mounted with a detachable harpoon head. Right, and the arrow is buoyant. Picture like the closest equivalent would be if imagine like a a piece of bamboo um, as thick as your thumb. It's not like bamboo at all, but just picture like a, a how how bamboo would piece of bamboo the size of your thumb would float. That arrow is long, much longer than our than long than American arrows. And it's mounted with a detachable harpoon point. The harpoon point has line on it, and the line is coiled around the shaft of the arrow. So when you shoot, the harpoon point goes into the fish, detaches from the arrow. The arrow floats up, and all the line that's been woven around, wrapped around the arrow unspools. So that wherever the fish goes, he's dragging around a buoy, so to speak. If you ever harpooned a hell, but it's the same... Kind of like the same principle, but this is driven by a bow. So your father climbs up in the tree, waits for the arapaima, and thwap, yeah, hits him. Fish. And the fish takes off with the arrow. Yeah, and then the arrow popped off. The point popped off on the point, and then the arrow floats. Okay. And then he chests behind. And, um, in, a, in a dugout. In a dugout. What he does is that he has like a 100-pound line with a single hook. So he swings his hand, and then grab the arrow that is going away. Okay. So he pulls the pulls the um arapaima when he hooked the line. Gotcha. So, so now he's hand lining the arapaima. Yeah, so he helps to pull. And how long did it take? Like forty five minutes to land the fish. Wow. Yeah. And then he then he butchers it. Yeah butchers it and then makes some slabs for four slabs out of it. Yeah. On our trip, we didn't fish 
on our trip we just did with Rova, we didn't fish Arapaima. And I'm, and I'm not like, I'm very respectful of the program they have, but it's like, I'm just not, it's great. I recommend people come do it, but it's just not something I'm interested in. Um, what we were doing was traveling with a group. How many, how many people were all together in our group? We had four boats. Ten. Ten people. Yeah. Well, ten, no. ten crew members plus us, so 15. 15. So, yeah, we had fifth, We were traveling four boats, 15 people, and we were um, exploring, observing wildlife, doing some amount of hunting and a lot of fishing, and we were basically catching, we, we were catching the amount of, like, enough fish that we were, were eating fish as we went and traveled along. And... We caught black prana, cataback, right? Now, one day we're sitting there. Yanni, talk about your your, your mystery fish because this is an interesting thing to happen. The flower-eating mm. rainstorm prana is what I call them. Yeah. That was a cataback, right? Yeah. Cataback. So explain that. Big gully washer yeah. rainstorm. But yeah, probably the first big rain we had seen, I think, of the trip. We're sitting at some tables underneath a heavy-duty tarp. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of rain where it's like frothing the water. You know I mean? Just so many big, heavy water droplets that you can't really see the water surface anymore. I call it full balls rain. Full balls rain. Yeah. And somewhere upriver, there must have been a, a tree. Do you know what kind of flowers those were, Rovin? What tree they fell no. out of? But probably, um, I don't know, probably rosebud sized. Not rosebud, but just like the flower of a rose. You know what I kept flower. thinking of is remember that charity organization? Who, and like oh, when you were hop, a kid. They're called Hoppers or something. When you were a kid, they, you'd like, they'd come up to your window and you'd give them like money. And they'd give you that little red flower with a green fake stem and it had like a wire in it. It wasn't the Shriners. I was going to say something like the Shriners. God, it's like a. I haven't seen those flowers in forever. They're that big. <laughs> if you're old they enough are. to know those what the hell I'm talking flowers. about. I think it's Veterans Day. Was it? Those little flowers? Anyhow. Smaller than a rose then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they're... Um, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Pink. Hot pink. They've been knocked out of the tree by the rain. And they are being basically funneled through this... Uh, new cut that's actually created in oxbow and coming out of that cut there's basically a, a, a just real classic seam that's like going into a big pool so you've got like slow water on one edge and you've got this faster moving current and there's like a foam line in there and just like in the american west you'd see bugs and stuff floating through there and you'd see trout you called it a food conveyor belt yeah or the fish treat it like a food conveyor belt. yeah exactly they can sit in there and just have the f- food coming right to them well, we're, we're just watching this rainstorm and watching the flowers floating by, and um, all of a sudden there's a, you know, what from that distance, we were, what, 100 yards away? It's like a what looks to be like a 5 to 10-pound bright red fish comes up and gulps one of these flowers. Like, holy shit, you know? And they proceed, I don't know, there was probably maybe, what, three or four of them over there doing that? But for 15 minutes, while it was really pouring, there was a lot of flowers in the water. We got to watch that. Feeding, yeah, feeding on a bouquet of flowers coming down the river. Yeah, and it turns out to be a vegetarian piranha. Yanni was throwing a popper at it, 
but Robin was incredulous of the plan, and Robin believes that that fish is is very sensitive to smell, and that he's smelling those flowers, and 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 hitting the flowers. Now, to back up, the first fish we caught was the big ass black piranha. This is like your classic piranha, like your horror movie piranha. Roven has a large scar. Was that from a black piranha on your leg? That was from red belly piranha. Red belly piranha. He was shooting fish with his bow when you were a little kid, right? And yeah. he got attacked by a piranha. Yeah. And that we caught that. Then hooked a fish called a swordfish, which is like a gar with a very fat body. A gar mouth. Imagine your classic like long-nosed gar with a big fat body. Then the catabacks, which are the one the flower eating. We heard the basha. Can you explain the basha? Basha, they they make song late in the afternoon. Songs, yeah, like so the one I don't know if you could remember the one that is our lore. Those are the ones, they are far away. The one that is louder that they are close in the depot. It transmits through the bow. It transmits through the whole of the boat. Yeah. A croaking noise. Yeah, the croaking noise. So they like to sing in the afternoon. Yeah. And apparently they're a bitch to catch. I wanted to catch one bad. He said it looks like a white peacock bass, and they like, they'll take live bait on the bottom, right? Yeah, of course. We went out and hooked some big ass catfish. Vampire fish. Yeah. Prior to oh. that. One of my favorites. No, vampires were above there, weren't they? No, they were no. below there. Yep. So we stopped and, and t- talk about the vampire fish, your word for it and what kind of where they like to live and what they do for a living. Vampire fish they they are Payara, right? They are called Payara. We call them Payara. They are. They have two te- very huge teeth. They feed on any fish that passes, and they hang around like rocks, rapids. And um, when the water comes up, they can travel up the river. Like we were seeing them this morning. Some of them travel up the river. They go up to breed in the rapid area. And... um. Yeah, they they can get really big, and the eyes they they have a big eyes eyes too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't understand how because those teeth the the one that Steve these guys caught those were like two inch dagger teeth, inch and a half. Yeah, and they, and they go into a sheath on the upper jaw, like a, like a like a like a saber tooth cat. Yeah, like a pocket that houses the tooth. And so and Dirt if, had a great question. Yeah, like how if they hit a fish. It's like trapped on that tooth, right? Yeah, like how's I mean, he ever get the fish back yeah. into his throat? One of the great mysteries. Yeah. He must somehow open his mouth and inhale. Yeah, it kills him. The initial strike kills and him. And then, then he, he... Yeah. Um, and those things are a pain in the ass to hook. They got... No, you can't get a hook into them because they got all this teeth going on. And they one of them jabbed you, right? What happened when Well, I tried to tooth? see how sharp his tooth was. <laughs> how, sharp, how sharp was it, Steve? <laughs> sharp enough where I was bleeding pretty good. <laughs> check how sharp his tooth was. Just as Roven was advising that I don't check how sharp his tooth was. <laughs> 
That was a badass fish. That was a bad it looks like a salmon, nightmare. a salmon with a saber tooth cat head. Yeah. How big is the biggest one of those you've ever seen? Uh, like four four feet. Oh gosh! Yeah, it's nightmare. Big, Whoa, <laughs> big, big, real big. Do you keep the teeth for ornaments? No, strong away. When we decided to go and catch big catfish. What was the bait you guys were trying to procure for the big catfish? The, what the fish that I know from Bolivia and Argentina as sabalo, but you have another word for it—a makushi yeah, word. We, local name is yakutu. Yakutu, yeah, is good bait. It's basically a sucker. Picture an American, some species of American sucker. That's what that fish looks like. And then you also liked catabac for bait, right? Yeah, they have good scent. So puree. Black, black piranha. Well, we call it puree. Puree. Black, black, yeah, puree. Black piranha, they don't have very good smell. So what we do, we kind of mix up the smell. So instead of having the black piranha all the time, we can switch to a catabac. Catabac have more smell. Um, that's the one we were catching with those... Um, Maggots. Yeah, cook it warm, we call it. And then to get a... Uh, catfish. So you catch, we caught some small bait, and you guys like to run cut bait. Mm-hmm. And then you go, just like you're fishing an American river. I mean, you, you read the water the same way and go to a hole and drop in with weight down to the bottom. And there are, I now know from our experience, there are four species of very large catfish. The leopard catfish which i thought was make-believe until i saw one so catfish looks like a leopard mm-hmm. tiger catfish which is known in some places as a cerubi banana or red tail catfish and what do you got what's your word for it yeah banana catfish oh you do that's your word is yeah, banana banana catfish. Catfish, yeah. and then what's the giant catfish that i hooked and lost when we got it up by the beach the local name is siana we call it um, Jawu. It's in Portuguese. And I know in Bolivia, I think they call it the Matoro mm-hmm. or Toro. Matoro? I think that's what like it was. Like the bull. And they get hundreds Maturo. of pounds. Yeah. So, and then they, we have the biggest one that lives more in the Escribo River, which is the Lao Lao. It's about over 400 pounds. Lao Lao. Yeah, Lao Lao. Very huge. Have you ever caught one of those? I got one small one. Yeah. Now, the the ones we were after that you like to eat are the banana catfish. And I can't even begin to describe what they look like. I Heavily armored. What, like, Patterned what? red. Yeah. Yellow belly, kind of a green, dark olive back, and a red tail. There you go. That's and some red, red fins. It looks like red banana. The, <laughs> yeah, it looks like a banana. The leopard catfish has such a hard head. When Rovin got his up, Rovin asked for an arrow. He wanted to jab it with an arrow, sort of like how you'd use a gaff to get a fish in the boat. I took my bow, my fish bow, and pulled back and tried to shoot it in the head, and the fish bow arrow bounced off its head. And then I realized you're not, you can't shoot him in the head. you got to shoot him in the body. And then yeah. Rovin jabbed it with a drop point arrow and pulled it up. But the banana catfish were much bigger. And... The really big catfish, though, you said you guys do not like to kill that catfish. 
because it's very rare and not good to eat. Yeah, not good to eat. What's the best one to eat? The leopard one. The one that's the one you like. That's the one you salted. Yeah, leopard, the catfish, and the banana. When you're out, how do you decide? Like when you're fishing, how do you decide what you're gonna, what fish you cook, what way, and whether or not you're gonna salt it and bring it home, or whether you're gonna eat it right there? Because when we fished catfish, we took the banana catfish and roasted them on the barbecue over the fire. The leopard catfish you salted and dried to bring home. Why? How did you make those decisions? So um, the banana catfish, the way, the way we bar- barbecue is, is it have more taste after the uh, the roast. Okay. When you cook it, it's more tastier than fresh. That's how we we uh, normally roast the the banana catfish. So if you cook it after after the roast, they have more taste. Gotcha. And and the um, the leopard one, the, it's it can be used fresh, but uh, since that that was the only chance I have uh, there, I, I got a fish. I had to like salt it to bring home. Yeah, because it's such a good fish. Yeah, it's a good fish. You get divorced if you don't bring fish home. Yeah. Yeah, on that note, Rogan was telling us that a lot of the the folks that stay at home waiting on these the crews that are out doing these trips now, they don't always understand when they're not coming home with fish because they're like, well, weren't you up there fishing for a week? They don't understand that Rovin's crew was just out there working hard, setting up camps, cooking for the clients, and they come home and they might not have fish, right? Yeah. And the wives get mad. The wife get real mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've been hogging it up. Does anybody have questions at this point? You get questions for Ro- Rovin or observations about what Ro- Rovin said? I've been getting all my questions answered. Hand, hand lining. The effectiveness of just throwing a hand line. No, uh, no rod. Rovin has it mastered. Yeah, I think it's a fact... From my perspective, yeah, it's very effective if that's what you have learned. If you're, if that's what you've learned to do, I think a lot of people would pick up the hand line and promptly snap the fish off. Yeah. What do you think that big catfish weighed, Giannis? The biggest banana we caught. So, oh, I don't. Thirty pounds, maybe forty. Not more than that. No, I wouldn't say more. Probably not more than forty. The one that got away was probably over 100 pounds, the one we weren't going to keep. Or maybe not over, but in that in that range, maybe. What, would, what do you think? I shouldn't say. You should say. We'll never know. All I will say is big. <laughs> <laughs> no, it looked like a, uh, uh, like a, uh, a six- or seven-year-old child. You know, laying in the water next to the boat. I mean, it with was, whiskers, with whiskers, <laughs> and a big fat green head. I mean, just for you know, t- to give a relative size. I mean, it was a big fish. Yeah. So Rovin, uh, they they don't braid their own fishing line. They obviously you know now use not obviously, but now they use monofilament. What's the wood you carve your spool from? Your handline spool. It's um cedar. Cedar. Yeah, it's a light wood. So. If a fish, big fish, like take 
take the um, the fishing line handle, which we call it, from your hand by mistake in the water, it can float. Oh, you can get it back. So you pick that wood because it's bu- buoyancy. Yeah, it's, it can float. Yeah. So he's got like a like, like a you know, just picture something you'd wrap kite li- like a kite line around or something, but it's not quite like that because it's open on one end. It's got handles, but the line can just spool off. Okay. So if you imagine like your classic kite cord, how it's it's got like a help me out here. Man. It's an it's an H. Yeah, imagine a kite cord being like an H, right? And you're wrapping it around the horizontal bar. This is a H minus um minus the one side. Yeah, minus two legs basically. Yeah, the H minus two legs. So you can hold the handles and let the line just spool off, and they wrap it with eighty or hundred pound mono. For sinkers, Roven buys a. Uh, sheets of lead marketed as fishing weights and out of this sheet of pounded lead he cuts strips of lead and then using his pliers folds or using his pliers folds these cut pieces of sheet lead into what we would call a plum sinker that passes through his line and he runs his mono to a wire leader to a big ass hook with a with a hand fashioned sheet lead sinker. And it's the same thing. When the fish picks it up, you let him run before you set the hook. Then you set the hook and he pulls all kinds of drag. And you gain on him and you lose on him and gain on him and lose on him. And it's just all the same thing, but you're doing it by hand. Very effective. And these guys can cast accurately, which is more impressive to me, using a hand line. And far, too. I mean, It's like throwing a lasso, like a circular yeah. motion overhead, like go at the right time. and Yeah, and they get about, uh, they get about three quarters the distance what your typical person is going to get throwing a spinning rod. Half to three quarters the distance that you're going to get with a spinning rod. But very good accuracy. Okay, that was, Rick, that was a question. Yep. You feeling good? Yeah, covered. I got a mannerism question. Please. With the because uh, you had talked about um, when we were at the village, I got I got to restart this over. Um, Take you, your time. These guys, uh, Ronan and, and the boys, were like these badasses, obviously from what we're talking about, but extremely uh, soft spoken and kind of uh, very quiet and polite and. Not boisterous. Do not yell. Yeah, no yelling. Do not hail another. You do not hail a person. No. You do not speak from boat to boat. Yeah, and get along great. <laughs> like there's a, there was some stressful stuff going on, and it always seemed like is that unique to your community, or is that you know what I mean? You said you had to learn to kind of interact with the the tourists because of that nature of your community. Is that unique to the the Manruki or? Yeah. So. The way we speak here is a uh, Creole way, not the perfect English speaking. So if I have to speak to one of my friends, I will speak my own way. If I have to speak to you, it's uh, I got to try to speak the, the right way where you could understand. Yeah. 
Because if I speak to you the way I speak to my friends, you would understand. You would like what? Because you know? <laughs> it's some, it, it's a, it's Creole, but also like there's some like local words, Makushi right. words yeah, put in, in right you know. in between. Yeah, and then we speak to one another in a quiet way, you know, where we understand. We are not yelling at each other, but uh, since I started to work with different people, started guiding. I try to speak more louder, try to speak more better, all of that. But because that, oh sorry, but the nature, like that calm nature, is that unique to the community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think what Garrett's asking is like, do you, like, is that just here in Rewa Village with your people? and uh, Or would you go an- to any Amer Indian community and you would find everybody speaking softly, quietly? Yeah, I think it's it's like... It's all around the region. Yeah. The, the same way. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. 
I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this SolarStream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. What's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. So just like an observation about that. Um, when you guys speak, this probably, it's something you know, I'm sure it's something you never thought of, but it's unusual for us because we're loud. You guys always speak at a whisper. Yeah. And you do not, you wouldn't yell to another boat. Matter of fact, I saw you today. You stopped to speak to a man on the bank of the river. And we pulled up at a distance that I would be very comfortable carrying on a conversation. <laughs> and you got out of the boat and spoke to him at a whisper, almost in touching distance. Um, you do not hail, you would never yell over, hey, go that way. You would never yell to get someone's attention, like, hey, grab my thing. Mm-hmm. Don't forget the. You go up to the person and whisper to that person. Not whisper, but a very, very low voice that would never, um, you, you wouldn't detect it. Do you think, that, does that come from needing to be quiet because of hunting and fishing? Or does that come from some other thing, do you think? Well, I think that, that you wouldn't yell at another person ever. I think it's just the way we we grew up here. It's a respect. Thing? Yeah, it's kind of a respect because my parents are not yelling at each other every day. You know? so, they don't yell at each other. No, so I grew up the same, and the rest of the the villagers as well. Would you ever yell at one of your kids? Well, at some point, if if I see the kid is about to fall, okay, I would say that I would yell. I said. Don't claim or don't do But that. you would never yell at about something that wasn't urgent emergency. Yeah. You had mentioned in one of our conversations that since you started guiding that you um that you learned how people would yell like, Hey Roven and say hi. Yeah. And you mentioned the challenge now of remembering of learning to do that. But remembering when you go into your village to remember to be quiet and calm, as you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's hard. At first, well, it it was a little easier for me when I started guiding because my guests did not hear what I was saying. Yeah. That was the problem for me as a guide. So what I do, I start to pick, speak up more so that my guests can hear what I'm saying. If it's a snake deer, I said, there's a snake deer. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine you are guiding like eight persons. Yeah. One one of them wouldn't hear or one of them would have like problem with hearing. And then if I said, there's a snake deer, probably might step back and march the snake and get, might get bite. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where I got to speak louder so that the guests would hear. Don't touch that. What we're stepping. Watch the bullet ants. Rattlesnake. There's a hole there. 
Dinner time. Dinner Dwar- time. Dwarf dwarf caimans which hide in the rocks and the rapids. Right. <laughs> the 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 risks that that when I, earlier I used a term. I don't know if you ever heard the term, but there's a term uh, like spatial awareness. It's just it's like a thing like um, pilots, like helicopter pilots, need to have tremendous spatial awareness where they're um, they they see everything around them in a broad sense. Okay, so everything within eyesight, outside of their their aircraft, they need to be aware of all things on all sides. But then also spatial awareness of, of these instruments and mechanisms that are right around them. So they're just capable of being aware of everything. Right. They don't bump their heads. Okay. Like a military helicopter pilot does not walk through a low door and bump his head. Because he's con- he, like he's aware all the time of everything going on. Yeah. I noticed that you guys that, that we were traveling with carry that spatial awareness where when you go to touch a stick or step over a log you're very aware of what insects or snakes or things might be there but you're also pointing out a red howler monkey 300 yards up away up the river and in the top of a tree so it is this like continual thing and, and the threats are real, and you rattle off a bunch. Like, in this area, you have a couple of kinds of ants that have, like, a debilitating bite. Um, the world's most deadly snake, or the new world's most deadly snake, the coral snake, maybe the world's. Dwarf caimans, which can bite. It's a lot of things to pay attention to. And imagine when you're guiding, you kind of feel like an obligation to have it be that people don't get. Have you had anyone get messed up by anything? I was with uh, you one time before and got zapped by an electric eel. <laughs> <laughs> which would be difficult to notice at night underwater. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if they could see it still. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, growing up here, we grew up along with the snakes and the ants, whatever, in the forest, I'll put it that way. So when we walk to the forest or we go travel to the river, camping, whatever, we know which ants could bite, which ants does not bite, what to touch, what not to touch, where to hold on, where not to hold on. Yeah. Because of the rotten wood and stuff like that. And now, if... Well, when you told me not to step on a piece of rotten wood, was it because you thought it would break or because it would have things that could get you inside of it? There are both things. One, it could be broken. You might get broken legs. Second, probably there are some ants that could bite and yeah. be painful. So that's why I said don't step on the rotten wood. Well, all of that is part of guiding, you know. When you are when you are guiding a group of people, you have to be telling them all of that because they don't know what is there, and even like a little tick bite, you can be scratching you. I have, all, I have all, two. All of them. I have two of them right now. Yeah, so they don't even know about that. I know about tick. I know when tick can bite me. Yeah, yeah. Even like the check jiggers. 
I know when the jaguar is going to my foot. I will take him out right away. Oh, did you guys hear that last night? We because we decided to skip out on bathing time. We missed the jaguar sighting. What? No. You guys saw a jaguar last night? Yeah, those guys went on beds on the bank on the beach jaguar. where we were all hanging out. Oh, the, where the tracks were. The yeah. jaguar came yeah. back. Yeah. No. While they were in the boat, it was just on shore. That was on the shore. On the shiniest jaguar there. Oh. oh. Is that jaguar in there? Is that jaguar? Because all the turtles had laid eggs there. And there were lizards and vultures and caracaras feeding on all the turtle eggs. Do you think the jaguar is in there because of all that activity with the turtles? Is he hunting turtles? Yeah, he's after turtles. When the giant river turtle comes up to lay eggs, the jaguar sees the turtle and then comes and gets him. So that's what they're doing is hunting turtles. Yeah. That Jaguar, the Jaguar track we saw was traveling with another Jaguar. Probably its own mm-hmm. sub-adult baby, I would guess. Would that make sense? Or would it be a large male and a female? Could be that. Or probably has a young one. Or it could be two, male and female. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got you, you, Questions? For Rovin, comments? We haven't uh, hit up the whole bow fishing, Paku. Oh, we're getting to that. All right. Don't you worry about that, Rick. Yeah, I was, well, I was going to ask Rovin, do you have enough time to keep talking? You don't have to be anywhere? Mm, I'm, I'm good for now. Okay. I just don't want to be the only guy that gets to ask questions. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. But I just want to make sure we're not keeping Rovin too long. Yeah. No, let's get on to bow fishing. Corey, you don't have any? Oh, well, my question was going to be like... Um, do you have a favorite thing to do out here in the bush? Is it fishing? Is it hunting animals, four-legged creatures, or is it is it bow fishing? It's it's both. It's all. Yeah. You don't have a favorite though. It no, it's just both. Like so, with the arrow, bow and the arrow is like you could do hunting and fishing. I could shoot uh, pawis or or a laba, my bow and arrow. That's a that's a large semi aquatic rodent and a very large, smaller than a turkey, but a, a very large game bird. Poies they call poies. Yeah, and then I could do the um, paco shooting with my bow and arrow. So you know it's it's like fun. It is fun. Looks fun. Oh, so he didn't say both. He said you said bow. That's your favorite to do. Yeah, bow. just to walk around with the bow. Bow is an arrow, and then whatever comes about, arrow popped up. You like so so you like let me let me back up a step. How many days a week do you, when you're not doing any guiding, how many days a week do you farm? Like twice twice a week. Okay. So you spend a couple days a week fishing and hunting, a couple days a week farming. Yeah. Do you like fishing and hunting? I know you don't like this kind of question. <laughs> do you like fishing and hunting more than farming? Oh. You like it all? I like it all. Because if, if you don't farm, like nobody will like support you. Hey, here's your farine, or here's your local drink, or here's your kasiri. So it's rather, you got to have your farm. So you got to have like a whole boat. So in all, you you have to do it. Farming, fishing, hunting. Yeah, but there's a difference between have to and like to. Like to. But you don't view it that way. No. Good. That's good. 
love to do. I all. think I really think it comes down to like asking a rancher if he lives in a pretty valley. It's just not part of. It's just like the nouveau ranchers would say so. Yeah, the, the no, but the long family yeah, it's ranchers. Very pragmatic would. response. Like, uh, yeah, it's just it just is. Yeah. Your brother Whitcliffe said you have to be a hunter man, a fisherman, and a weaver man. You have to be a perfect man to get a wife. Right? Yeah, yeah. If if you, if you are not capable of doing those things, you would not get a wife. Weaving, hunting, fishing, and presumably yeah. farming. <laughs> That's my problem. So, yeah, Rick can't weave. He can juggle. <laughs> um. So. Yeah, does that get to? Yeah, no, I understand. No, no, I mean, I know you, but I didn't know if there was a if there was a discrepancy between what you were asking and what was being answered. No, my question was, you know, more fun sitting in the boat fishing or bow, and I think he likes to do the bow with. Yeah. He can shoot birds or the, when, or the fish. When was the first time that you made it all the way up to the uh, Bamboo Falls? Bamboo uh, and. 2007 went up there when you got there did you f- I want to I want to like yeah I do a segue do a segue for me bring us into this is a, a hosting challenge for you on the spot segue bring us into pock I, I don't even know where to begin it's so like bow fishing for Paku is so extraordinary that I don't know how to get into it like, do you approach it through the tackle? Do you approach it through the fish? Do you approach it through the you covered habitat? Ro- you covered Robin's uh, tackle. No. Yeah, Not yeah. the Paku tackle. Just set the scene, just the landscape. Isn't it a po- it's a drop, w- drop, w- drop point with the, with the string, right? No. Because he has a spool of line in his hand when he's fishing Paku. No. It's it's made differently. Because it washed down the waterfall and go over the rapids, you never see the damn thing. Right. I think the portage with the loud roaring of the waterfall. It's a good like, way to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to even it's so extraordinary and otherworldly, it's just very difficult for me to even I don't, it's just I don't know where to begin. Where Yanni, pick a thing and begin. Bright red fish. Okay, go with it. There you go. That's what you're looking. What do they eat? That's what you're looking for. It's bright red fish that are eating like red, like a, something out of a out of a, a fish store. Yeah, like if like, you went to Petco, which I don't think carries fish. If you went wherever the hell people buy aquarium fish, and you said, "I need like a six seven pound bright red fish bigger than a dinner plate," please. Yeah, it's very. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna. I was actually gonna relate that scene when we saw the catabac eating the flowers to like it was like very koi pond. Yeah. Like, you know, it was almost had this like oriental sort of like feeling, like very oh, rainy and flowers and bright red fish coming out of murky yeah, you know those water. Japanese paintings? Like they would love to paint that scene. Right. Those old style Japanese paintings where you paint like a tranquil scene. Yeah. So these uh the Paku are bigger than dinner plate, I'm guessing. Very big dinner plate, like serving platter size. And uh, as tall thick. as they are long, yeah. No, I mean, they, yeah, exactly. They're, yeah, if they were just a little bit shorter, they would be a circle. And they're eating paku weed, yeah, yeah, which grows. There's a question I don't think we ever got answered during the trip Does that plant grow when the water's lower? 
out of the water or is it is it an aquatic plant is it always in the water it's always on the water and stays on the rock so but it always has water gushing yeah, yeah, over yeah yeah this is full balls waterfall i mean this is like like drops that are five feet drops up to we we better bring in the kayak expert. Twenty, yeah, twenty five, twenty. Twenty, I mean, twenty five foot drops with a, a, with a lot of steps in them. Oh yeah, like like natural fish ladder structures up these falls. When you think of like the hidden gem in a in the jungle rainforest, like like awe inspiring. It was that was unreal. Yeah, if it was rainbows and shit coming yeah. off the mist, so hard to get yeah. to. It's tr- if it wasn't so hard to get to, they would build boardwalks and just charge you to take a look at it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's throwing up so the waterfalls throwing up so much mist that it it's a completely different plant regime there. Yeah. You know, so all the vegetation's different yeah. around there because it's like a it's like a misty moisture in there, and it's damn warm all the time. It just like creates a weird habitat. But Yanni was running with the fish, teeth like a human being. Yes, other people. In that, they have a top row and a bottom row of teeth. Yeah. All yeah. lined up. Yeah, and they're sort of squi- squarish, I guess. And they touch. Yeah. Like a person. <laughs> like a person. Like a person with weird pig-like teeth. Yeah. But when I first looked at it in his mouth, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, you look like my wife. Relative you know? to other fish. Or possibly humans. Yes. And... The greatest name ever, like the plant they make arrows from is called arrow plant, and the plant the Paku eats is called Pakuit. Pakuit. It looks like par it's kind of it resembles resembles parsley and has a watercressy kind of vibe and grows where grows stuck to the rocks of a waterfall. In the waterfall. Like not like in a riffle, not in a a churning pool. But where the water is gushing. Falling. Yeah. Say if it was six inches deep, it's a place where there's so much velocity to the water that if you stuck your boot, your foot into that six inches of water, it would gush up halfway up your thigh. Yeah. There's that sort of velocity moving through there. It kind of like grows on rocks, almost like under falling water. Yeah. And sometimes right in the, just like in the current. And the Pakus hold in the current in all kinds of postures. They, they, they have fins that like, like their whole backside is like fins, like because their dorsal fin is so far back that it almost becomes like in line with the tail. Mm-hmm. And their ventral fin is huge and goes back where it almost kind of joins forces with the tail too. And they hold like, like a normal fish upright. They hold sideways sometimes depending on what they're doing. And they're in there like a like a like an aquatic mountain goat, climbing around in the falls, eating the water crest paku plant. So when you gut them, it just looks like you could garn. Like I was telling Corey, like when you gut them, you could take it and garnish a dish with it. Yeah, with the contents of his gut. Yeah, I think something that you could point out. I can't. I can. I can visualize it because I saw it, but. Something critical of those spots that were good Paku fishing or boat fishing areas was the like where it's not like a, a river and then waterfall and like I said a step. It's like all these weird pocket. The rock is cut in so many different depths yeah. and weird. Like I don't know. 
Like the center of the river might plunge. The center of the river like does a real plunge. Yeah. But the sides of the plunge have like these steps where it's like fall, pool, fall, pool, yeah. all hauling ass. But it's like a it, monument. If you were to design a waterfall yeah. from scratch, you'd be like, okay, I'm going to put a little step here, a little step there, yeah. and like very aesthetically pleasing. And a big ass redfish. And a big ass. <laughs> yeah. It, like- it kind of climbs around. <laughs> it kind of climbs around in the rapids. Yeah. And you walk up to the rapids, and you're like, the only thing that would make this waterfall better is a fish that I could shoot with my bow and arrow. <laughs> and lo and behold, out of the froth emerges for a second, just enough to make you think you're, like, hallucinating this giant red fish who then goes back underwater. And then you perch up with a bow and an arrow. And they're cagey. And, yeah, and you got to sneak up on them. So you sneak up into, like, bow range of where you saw this improbable flash of red. And you perch up, not at full draw, because you don't know how long it's going to be, but at a, a, an attentive quarter draw. Some of the fish. Some of them are just pretty much sitting there holding, but, the, you know, they all kind of dodge in and out. And you wait, and when your shot opportunity comes... You're doing what uh, what every bow fisherman knows. You need to aim low for refraction. So it's like when you stick a stick in the water. If you ever jab your fishing pole in the water, it looks like your fishing pole's got a bend to it, right? It's refraction. Um, you got to aim below the fish for refraction. But what American bow fishermen never have to do is hold up for current. I was shooting a fiberglass arrow, which cuts better than Rovin's arrowwood arrow there's been a jaguar killing dogs in this town and a dog just ran by and i'm waiting for the jaguar to come after but he only comes at he only comes at night huh? oh yeah how many dogs has he got now in the last couple of weeks well, it's 24 now he's more 24 yeah. he's got 24 dogs the dogs killed already when are you guys gonna kill the jaguar or don't you think you will yeah. are you worried about running out of dogs no <laughs> There's a lot of dogs, puppies. And there's no fear that that jaguar is going to grab a person. That just doesn't really happen. That does not happen. Yeah. That's rare. Rarely happens. He'll just eat dogs and chickens. Dogs and chickens. He's killed 24 dogs in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Was here since December. Oh, he's been here for a couple months. Making a good living. Getting good meal. <laughs> so... Robin's arrow's buoyant. You sometimes probably have to aim. If you imagine the fish's length, how much are you leading the fish upstream? Well, it's it's not much since I have the wire point to shoot the paco. It's heavy point, okay. and also the the draw point. It's made from three inch nail so it's heavy if if I had a bullet wood or a proper hard point it will be light so when I shoot the current of the water will drift away the arrow mm-hmm. but uh, I'm using a wire point so I, I would uh, aim probably four inch um, off the head okay that's what I, when I was picturing when I was shooting them I was sort of aiming at his, basically aiming at his mouth. Okay. And I was hitting, most of the ones I hit were just behind the gill cover. Yeah. 
But I was kind of picturing like, okay, I aim at his mouth and then it'll drift back. And yeah. so you figure you're like four inches off his nose. Yeah, and all depends on where the fish is and how deep. Yeah, and how deep. If the fish is in strong current, that's where I picked. But if the fish is like behind the rock where there's not so much of current hanging around there, then I am straight to the fish. Yep. And sometimes the fish come up with their fins out of the water. And they just aim right at him. Yeah, straight on him. And when he gets hit, he starts, he, the, the fish in your arrow to start tumbling down the waterfalls. Yeah. Which is one of the challenges of it. Um, well, so the drop point is tied onto the line, and the line is 80 pong. Sometimes when you, as soon as they get a hit, goes on the falls a little and then the line tangles here and can wrap around your foot yep. wrap your hand that's a difficult part because it pulls the dart yeah pulls it your, pulls the dart yeah. pull your parent point out right and it's it's strong it's strong very strong fish yeah so all that fish when, when that fish wants to take off all he needs to do is turn sideways yeah turn sideways and then it's just like there's no stopping him so Roven's point like I said he makes his harpoon point from a nail a three-inch nail, and flattens it and then cuts barbs into it. And if his line tangles up on something, he's not. He, he, the fish can't pull drag, so to speak. So it'll pull and pop his point out. Modern, like American fish arrows, can kind of withstand it the way the barbs are set up. You can kind of like stop the fish and pull them back. But it's like a pretty delicate thing because you're shooting the fish and then playing it, hand-lining it, and you got to climb your way down the rapids, climb your way down the waterfalls to try to retrieve your fish. And that's one of your favorite fish. Yeah. These are one of my favorite. They're tasty, and it's it's fun shooting them, too. You like to shoot them? Yeah, I like to shoot them. I sure do. It's just like, like I said, it's like, when you bow fish in America, in our country, you bow fish in the dankest, like, muddiest swamp hell holes. Generally, not always, but generally you're in, like, stagnant backwater kind of stuff, hunting for fish that are not the best. Let's just put it very kindly and say that they are generally not the best eating fish. Because the really good fish, the very popular fish in our country, you're not allowed to shoot with a bow. So the fact that you can bow fish for the best fish, and I think the boys here can speak to the quality table fare of the fish in this river. I was going to say, like, like how is that? The like how their meals are very uh, not very varietyed. As guests, we had amazing food, and like I don't know, ten different ways catfish cooked or maybe seven i don't know bunch different varieties the fishy isn't very the fish isn't very fishy it's like there's no mud it's like it's all like meaty like groupery catfish yellow eye rock fishy like really satisfying dense dense yeah that pack paku lunch oh my god the fish are good yeah they're like ocean fish yeah they taste like ocean fish i mean just the ecosystem the Amount of fish, the size of the fish, it's like a full-on 
just a bit, you know, when, when I think of American rivers, I think of little trout or even big trout, but nothing like, nothing like what's going oh, on Oh, trout are cupcakes, man. Yeah. Yeah, little yeah. things. I just realized the Paku thwarts my theory about fish who... I pointed that out when you posted the theory. Paku? Being one of the... Yeah, Dirt Dirt was observing that. Yeah, not theory. Tell me what you were observing. Well, big game, generally, the herbivores are the tastier animals, other than the mountain lion. Yeah, like in a general sense, animals that eat grass and grain. Yeah. And then with fish species, generally the fish that are the predatorial fish that are the tastier, flakier meat. Yeah. I totally totally agree with that. I must have, yeah. But the the parsley fed <laughs> Paku, Paku is, is it's the mountain lion of fish. Yeah, but it is a I mean it is a vegetarian <laughs> piranha. Like it's from the you know yeah family of. All right, man. Um, to catch that the Paku with a line. You, oh, that's you, interesting. Yeah, you walk out in the waterfalls and get yourself a handful of Paku weed, and then you build like a little. Paku weed nugget that's uh what is it, the size of like a um like maybe a fun size Snickers or a little bit smaller. Fun size Snickers and uh you wrap it up with like a heavy uh braided line, make this little packet, and you basically run your hook right through it, and that's it. And you cast that out and just dead drift it in the current, wait for the hit. And while we were bow fishing, um we kind of checked out a few different falls and got five Paku, big bastards. And while we were boat fishing, some of the other guys were hand lining Paku weed, hooks dressed in Paku weed, and they caught three small ones. Did you guys, were you guys aware of that? Mm-mm. I didn't know That's the thing. Is like you go off in one direction to do something. And these guys. And you think that like you're kind of following all everything that goes on. Then you come back and say, where the hell did this thing come from? <laughs> like a bunch of fish laying in the sand this morning you're like like, you can't like keep yeah this morning yeah there's a whole we wake up to go out it's raining too hard to go it's raining too hard to go out looking for semi-aquatic rodents and so i go back to sleep and wake up and get word that they're out fishing and come back with like a splendid array of fish to bring home it's hard to keep up that's my concluding thought too much life on this river. <laughs> it's too much. Can't keep up. <laughs> too much stuff to catch. What'd you call that, Rick? In the visual sense, with the drone, when there's too much appeal. Oh, my buddy Reed says you're like, like a dog at at the beach, dog beach, dog beach in it, and you just run in every direction. Like you're so excited about everything, <laughs> you don't know which way to go. It happens when we're doing camera work. There's something to film, and there's so many things to film that you just can't. You don't. You don't film any of them very well because you get so <laughs> you get so distracted by everything that you end up with nothing. So maybe the fishing was like kind of like that here, just so much going on. That's that's how I would. But these guys hone in and get it get it done. So dirt, yeah. Uh, wrap up thoughts. Yeah, actually, the I knew the trip was going to be good. As far uh, I knew it was going to be good regardless. But when we showed up to the first camp. And you're committing to this, you know, seven-day trip. And the stove, the modern stove we brought, ends up, for technical reasons, not working. And there wasn't, like, a beat skipped 
and these the boys and the the cooks these two gals cooked for 15 people for seven days over fire yeah we brought down a camp chef we brought down a camp chef stove that runs off liquid propane but these guys get a gas look at that crazy weather happening these guys get a gas that comes out of Brazil and can't. I can't tell what the hell it is. I've never no. seen a fitting like that. But it did, they didn't skip a beat. They're like, oh, no. okay. No one ever's like, oh, son of a bitch, it's yeah. raining. Like, people don't talk like yeah. that. Yeah, or like blaming. Like, I was like, oh, or, oh I got bit. <laughs> 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 all, all we ever go is like, ow, <laughs> stop baby. No, they never yell that they got bit. I'm like, do they not get bit? <laughs> of course they get bit. Very impressed with uh with the whole experience and the culture. Yeah, I'll second that. Rovin's got a tight run ship. It's a nice crew to be on the river with. Well, it's a lot of his – Rovin works with his relatives, so brothers, brother-in-laws, wife. Cousin, right? Neville was your cousin. Cousin. Yeah, so that's who he travels with. Would you do you get along so well because you're all related or because you're all from the village? We are from the village. So you get along that way with everybody in the village? Yeah. Yeah, so the way we do it is like we don't want to get into so much of problem. Like family only implied this kind of rumors. So we call like Rudy, we call like other persons and some of um, my brother in laws in between. So everybody like must have to get implied. So you keep people when you're doing a river trip for with clients, you hire Outside of your own family, and yeah. just to get everybody involved. Yeah. 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 Uh, Rick, uh, I'm trying to think. Um, there was a the work ethic uh, was really great to see, but it's a really real nice balance uh, from all the guys that were basically working as as outfitters and and setting up our camp. And there was a ton of work to be done. Um, and it would be done very quickly, efficiently, and then uh, the guys were very quick to just ha- just hang out in a very relaxed way. And it was a nice, it was just, it was nice to watch this work hangout balance that I think most people don't do a very good job at, and they just seem to handle the tasks that need to be done, and then they just had to, you know, take go fish or go bathe or go just hang out. Um, the yeah, I think it's a it's a lifestyle that I think Americans often want to have some some sort of balance like that, but can't reach it for for any number of reasons. Because some people work too much and some people hang out too much. That's exactly right. That was an ongoing conversation we were having. Is we were I was griping when we'd have like bullshit sessions. I was griping a lot about a thing that I've developed as sort of a pet subject kind of like a pet peeve is like American relaxation culture. People who get like really serious about relaxation and who like to get all set up to relax and who are like, who plan a day of just relaxing and how much that aggravates me. But they're not really relaxing in the end. No, they do spare bit relaxing. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they they got to plan it. They got to go buy the stuff. They got to work hard to buy the stuff. You yeah, know, like, like we had a in chair. In the end, it comes out to be like probably more work than relaxation. I had a chair that's like a, on one arm of it, a camp chair. And on one arm was like the zippered insulated pocket. And on the other arm is a cup holder. The thinking being, 
You could put like two beers in the chair arm that you're ready to drink. And then the one beer that you are drinking, and have it be that you've eliminated now the need to get up. <laughs> you're like, ha, suckers. <laughs> I'm relaxed. Getting up. <laughs> Here these people are getting up to go get a beer, you know, not knowing that you could get a chair designed so you don't even need to do that. I was wondering if they're going to get make one with a catheter. If it had another bag that just held a urine sack, you'd be set. Then, like people who, who like really are into relaxation, would be even better. I bring this up because one of the things is I've been like, the, my wife and I bought our first house not a year ago, and it has like a rooftop deck, and I'm rigging the rooftop deck up for what I imagine to be like uh, you would at a passing glance think of it as a relaxation area and i'm just one day it struck me like when this is done the last thing i will ever do is come up here and sit here and relax i will lose all interest in it once it's done like i'm not gonna be like now i'm gonna go up there and sit (laughs) maybe you need a little balance in your life (laughs) yeah that's a that's a personality thing yeah take a moment after a hard day's work and go relax. Just, yeah, but some pe- some people relax by weeding, which is what Steve will be doing up there. Yeah, I put pl- reading, I put garden weeding. boxes out there so I can go out there. <laughs> yep, yep. That's what I was saying. I'll go up there and be like, "Why won't this plant grow?" Um, I was gonna comment on hammock sleeping, which I've never done. Come down here, Robin sets up a very fine hammock system. It's got a. Uh, and it's amazing. They set this up. There's like no poles in the ground whatsoever. And in an hour or less, they've got a giant tarp over the top, giant tarp on the ground, like four posts or maybe more. Yeah, talk about the, the, the camp style and what it's reliant on, <laughs> yeah. the two things it's reliant on. Um, soft, sandy soil. You, you can, can dig an eight-foot deep hole in five yeah. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, wood, soft wood that's strong get easily chopped with a uh machete or cutlass as they call them here and and no reservation about cutting said wood <laughs> that's right yeah that was something we were talking about it's like when we grew up it was like it, you were like we were we got whooped if we were caught you know chopping at green trees we go into the woods boys and whack at dead rotten trees as much as we wanted but if we were caught like working over a live tree we literally got whooped for it and uh, down here, there is just so much that, okay, if you had a bulldozer running through the woods, okay, you, you've reached an extreme. But, like, you and a cutlass just simply cannot damage the rainforest, right? So No, at best you can carve out, like, a little spot. A little spot that you'll have for a little while. When you come back a week later, you're going to do some more <laughs> carving to get it back to be your spot again. But, uh, yeah, so they run opposing poles. At a little bit of an angle, and then run the uh, hammock line from that, and then the hammock is enclosed in a um, mosquito netting. It's stretched out with little uh, T bars so that you got plenty of room inside there. And I guess the hammocks are made out of cotton. Yeah, they're made of cotton. Yeah, cotton. Do you know how they sometimes peg their posts? Like, because yeah. you'll dig a hole with a machete, mm-hmm. yeah, sink a post in it, and then take a peg and like pound the peg so it fills the space, the gap, pack in with dirt. Mm-hmm. Very quick ch- task. Yeah, I love the hammock sleeping. I thought I thought it was going to throw my back for a loop, and yeah, I was. That was probably one of the things I was worried about the most was going to be that I was going to like three days into it be like crippled from hammock sleeping, 
And uh, well, we had different experiences. Corey, you didn't you didn't do so well. First, but couple days was fine. Till the bo- boat portages. Maybe it's the I don't know. Some heavy lifting. I've spent a few days on the Amazon and I used the hammock there and I did all right, but I ended up sleeping on the ground in the last couple nights. Snakes. Here you did. Snakes were gonna get yeah. you. Where were you on the ground? Right under my hammock. <laughs> <laughs> were you getting up bit bitten a lot by the ants and ticks and whatnot a lot? No, I figure out of the way you put the mosquito netting underneath. Oh I that's where a, you were I, sleeping. Yeah. Oh, good thinking. You know, the machete thing, I, I, we did chop a lot of green wood. It wasn't like, uh, you remember that show, Name That Tune? No. Yeah. It was like a show, it was like a game show, and you had to be like, there's like a host, right? And the, the, you'd come on, and you'd be like, I can name that tune in four notes. Oh, I can and then do they'd it, play I can four do notes. Yeah. And then someone was, I'll name it in three. Well, with that, I'll name it in two. And they played two notes, and then if the guy gets it, he like wins money. Mm-hmm. We had a game, we played as... What kids called it was based off name that tune. It was called Chop That Tree. And we would walk <laughs> up to a tree with a machete, and he'd be like, Dan, I can chop that tree in five hits. And he'd be like, I probably chop that tree in four hits. And I'd be like, Dan, chop that tree. And then he would have to, you know. And what did you win money? Can't remember. No, we didn't bet money on it. But what it reminded me of like how much we were able to roam around machetes. And last time I was here, I brought Roven's machete home with me and got in way-ass trouble when my wife get- came around the corner and our and I was letting our three-year-old cut loose on a rotten pumpkin with that machete. And she's still kind of mad about that. And even Roven thought that was foolish of me. <laughs> <laughs> Roven, you don't let your kids play with machetes? <sighs> No, when they were sharp, you know, they're allowed them to play. Yeah, I catch my shot. Rick, Rick just juggles them. He don't, <laughs> Rick don't use them on anything besides the air. Did you guys use that hatchet or the cutlass better? I, that black hatchet. I used it last night. Is it yeah. not as good as the cutlass for right well, it, it works good. Yeah, it does. It's more heavier. Mm-hmm. For pounding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and another thing is, uh, speaking of, like, cutlasses and whatnot, um, Flaying, not flaying, but like basically like cutting fish and doing like fillet type maneuvers on fish with machetes is interesting to watch. Yeah. Uh, Corey, any wrap up thoughts? I'll wrap up. Let's see. I was talking to Rudy on the beach, sand beach yesterday while we were drying out our clothes, and he kept referring to the outside world. And uh, I thought that was, it's kind of neat that you guys are kind of, there's a place still left where they're, you know, people are looking outward and thinking it's an outside world. Like, I don't, I don't know. And yeah, uh, like but, you can still have the sense of there being this and then the yeah. other. Yeah, and and how you guys are taking that outside world and like, you know, bringing people from that outside world here to the Rewa Lodge. And uh, but you're you're preserving your culture through that. Like you're reaching out to the outside world. And at the same time, you're preserving your culture. You know, it's a it's a pretty special place, and it's accessible. I might add. I mean, we did JFK to Georgetown on like what a five and a half hour flight, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And then Georgetown, an hour an hour plus, a couple minutes um, charter flight. In a set, yeah, it was in a, wasn't it like a single prop Cessna caravan? Yeah, that lands on a on a grass like a dirt strip. And then Rovin and his boys pick you up, and in an hour, you're at the Eco Lodge living large. 
before we go, we should. I get I get my concluder. You said you already had your concluder. Well, I thought of a different one. All right, Roman. We talked about something privately, and if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to. But would you mind talking to a public audience about what happened with the Peckeries, or is that something you don't want to discuss? Like why you're not seeing them right now? Well, um, we have a shaman. They are like the, I would say, they are like the doctors, nurses, whatever you could call in your country. But here we have like shaman. They are knowledgeable. They have the power of using, uh, we call it Amarian high science. They can do anything to a fish, to the river, to animals, such as peccaries. Um, 12 approximately 12 years ago we used to have a lot of peccaries coming close to the village yeah, feeding, a white white lip peccary yeah, which peccaries. would come like a 100 or 200 right. of them at a time yeah and they're like a hog pig kind of yeah we call them white, white hogs we call them have we have the collared peccary which is called a javelina this is a bigger louder more gregarious javelina Species of have collared white lip peccary. So this these hogs, wild hogs, peccaries used to come and feed in, in the end of the ponds, you know, feeding on fruit nuts, worm, and as you go travel up the river, you can bump into them. You can hear them from a distance. You can even smell them. Used to find, used to, we used to have a lot of fun, like shooting, and we have like meat. We can barbecue, lots of barbecues, fresh meat. Now. In other Amerindian villages, they have people that have very knowledge, like you said, shaman, and because of we um, having a lot of food, and and where they don't. Now there's like jealousy. If for if I'm, if I'm jealous of Steve. Steve is accurate in shooting. I would do my high science on Steve, and next time he wouldn't shoot accurate. Anything he shoot is like miss, keep missing. Like throw because, a curse on him. Uh, yeah, like miss. So because of my, I use my high science on him. So people are like like that here. So what they do is like they stop the pickeries, they lock them up somewhere. Well, I don't know where, but somewhere between the mountains. I have no idea. Using their high science. Now, to get the pickers to come out from there, we have to get another another shaman that could do the high science to get the pickers out from there because they are locked up there. Now, if we have one like that, we could get the pickers out. Now they will be all over again. Yeah, but that's that's how the pickers have been stopped. How did the shaman get that? Get to that level. Well, is there someone training it, or you know what I mean? They they learn from their parents. Their parents like was like a shaman. He smoked tobacco through his nose, and you know, like dirt. Yeah, they do a lot of things. They can bring down like a fish spirit by shaking the bush in the house, doing their things and stuff like that. And then they can bring down like a a pickerist, uh Pickery's leader, I would call it that way. Now, hey, you know, 
gap with him, take a little shot of local drink, you know, by spirit. And then if the shaman said, okay, watch, I want to lock you up here for a while, two, three years, four, five years, how many years, and be there. And don't come with I want you to be there. I want you to stay there. That's how the, the shaman works. They, they have like a little power. The signs they are working. So they are like good and bad ones. Yeah. So I don't know if you were here and you saw the pickeries, but um, we used to have a lot of pickeries here. We used to have a lot of meats. We, we used to have a lot of fun. But now there is no white pickeries. We just have the colored ones around. Did the did the shaman or the other village that used the high science to lock up the peccaries, did they tell you that they were doing this, or did the peccaries just disappear, and then you 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 speculated that that's why they... Yeah. We, we, know, we know. We know. Because for a while, we didn't see any peccaries, and then we have our shaman in the village. He's not perfect, but at least you can get some experience, but he could, or he could tell you what is happening. He knows what's happening. He, he knows what's happening. Yeah. So he said, oh, well, there's somebody locked them up there, so they're there, and that's why they're not coming out anymore. Even with, even with the fish, like, if somebody, like, do something to the river, you will hardly get some fish, hardly get some turtles, otters, caimans, and so on. So, that is how the shaman works. They are good ones and bad ones. You know, they could do any anything. Yeah, I understand. Whoever like, I understand why someone would be jealous of Rewa Village because it's a beautiful village that's wonderful to visit. So I understand how someone that had a bad village that wasn't this way and this friendly and such great people. Um, I see how they would get jealous. Yeah, but I don't think that you. I, I don't think that 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 that, that I, I hope that your peccaries come back. Yeah, I hope they yeah. come back soon. Someday I'll start to become a shaman. Bring out all. I'll bring out all the peccaries. <laughs> I hope. I hope that they come back. <laughs> Robin, do you have any uh, thoughts you'd like to? Do you have anything you want to say that you didn't get a chance to to talk about? Well, I just want to say. Like a thank you to all of you guys who come up here choosing Guyana, choosing Riwa and to do a little explore trip with me and then hope you learn something from our culture that we are keeping up, the traditional way of life we are doing, fishing, that's what we do for a living. We fish, we hunt, we farm, we do all of that for our living. And now, traveling up the river, we, it's not something, it's not something that is new to us. We have been doing this for years, so we, we get used to it. Now, imparting that to you guys, you, maybe someday I would go there and see how you live there, maybe far different. Here is like local way. So, do you, yeah, you know the river like how a person who's had the same garage for 10 years knows what's in their garage. Yeah. Night driving and stuff. Night driving. We, we, <laughs> yeah, a lot of night driving. We know the rivers. <laughs> Robin, how, if someone wanted to, if someone wants to come 
and, and visit with you and do a river and hire you to do a river trip, what is the best way that they get in contact with you? You can contact me by email. Do you want to say what your email is? Yeah, robinalvin at gmail.com. So R-O-V-I-N-A-L-V-I-N. Oh, I'm sorry, from the top? R-O-V-I-N-A-L-V-I-N at gmail.com. Rovinalvin at gmail.com. Yeah. And you will help, the, if someone wants to come, you will help arrange a, 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 a trip on the river. Yeah. To see how you live. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that we've ever done this on this show, but it is a, um, I, I live in, in constant, you know, I'm always a little suspicious of, uh, not suspicious of guy, that's not the right word. I don't, I don't know if I've ever done this in this vocal of a way, but if you have the time and you have the money and you want to see, I don't want to say a vanishing way of life because that would, I hope, be wrong. Um, I hope that it's not a vanishing way of life. If you want to see a way of life that uh, brings you, that brings a closer understanding of um, how we all lived when we lived in, in, in greater harmony with the natural world and with the greater level of understanding of the natural world. If you want to have that set of experiences um, and really get a, a glimpse at a, an aspect of humanity that you, that you miss and maybe long for and maybe you've always been curious about, but to do it in a way where you are kept safe and where you are taken care of and your um, needs are met and um, someone has the patience to answer your questions and doesn't leave you hanging on any questions and that has the answers for the things you want to know, um, I cannot recommend, uh, I can't give a higher recommendation than, than what I'm giving right now. It really is. I think it's something that someone would go do and they would refer to it when they were doing their relaxing for the rest of their <laughs> life. <laughs> no chair has a big enough beer pocket to um, hold enough beer for you to tell all the stories that you will pick up when you spend a week or two on the river with Roven. Um, I agree. I agree 100%. Yeah. I, would, I don't want to sound fatalistic. I would do it now. Go now. Um, don't wait too long because things have a way of changing around. Uh, anyone else? Any last thing? Go now. That was a good conclusion. Yep. Yeah, well said. Thanks, Rovin. Thanks, Thanks Rovin. Yeah, yeah, Rovin thank, for everything, man. And the rest of the crew. For all the yeah. time you guys yeah. spent um, looking out for us and teaching us. It, it was, a, again, this is my second time down here, and it was just you know, like I said, I will refer to this for the rest of my life when I'm talking about life in the out of doors. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. 
Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.